You know, we're in a series called Rescued from Religion, and today we're talking about shame. And uh, it's been a personally challenging series for me, again, because it's helped me actually uncover some additional areas in my own life where I need to face and grow. And that's one message I want to communicate to you is that, you know, we, we talk a lot about things that uh, we're all growing in. A lot of times people define hypocrisy as uh, saying something you don't live yet. Well, I'm sorry if I would only say everything I perfectly live, I would not be up here. There would be nobody up here. Really, the difference is uh, between hypocrisy and faith is whether we're real with where we're at or not. And quite frankly, this has been a really challenging week in terms of this topic for me because God's been working on me as well. A couple of weeks ago, I was driving home from, uh, from church with my daughter, Elise. And uh, I'm, I'm one of these guys that uh, this is not always real natural for me. So when I get up here, I, I, go, I go to this internal gear somewhere deep in the recesses in my mind. So uh, just so you understand, if you're ever coming down for prayer and I have a hard time remembering your name, but I, but I know your name like the back of my hand, it's because it usually takes me about five to ten minutes to shift gears from when I'm here. So there's been times I've prayed for people here and I, I know them. I talk to them all the time and it could be my family member and I can't remember their name sometimes so that's that's just me but you know i get in the car with elise and i'm just starting to wind down a little bit and you know we go through the niceties how was your morning did you sleep well last night how was church and and we get about halfway home and we just kind of go silent and 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 i'm just kind of winding down and then and then all of a sudden out of out of nowhere i just kind of go boom to the steering wheel i mean i just hit it really hard and i never do that well not with anybody else in the car and uh, Annalise was shocked, and I told Wendy about that too. She was going, really? You did something like that? You never pop off. And, uh, but I popped the steering wheel really hard, and, and Elise goes, Daddy, are you okay? What's wrong? What's, what's wrong? I mean, she was really upset by it. And I said, oh, no, honey, I'm fine, I'm fine. But then I had to back up and say, well, you know, I'm not really fine. I just popped the wheel and I never do that in front of her, so I better tell her what's going on. And it really all it was was just this silly thought. It's actually a day that, that I felt like the message went really well, but one little thought of one thing that came through my mind that I, I went, oh, man, I didn't say that good. It didn't come across like I wanted it to. It was actually supposed to be a joke in the, in the sermon and, and nobody got it. And, and see, normally... Normally, I'm really, really comfortable with the fact that I'm not a comedian. I, I'm, I'm not a great joke teller. And, and, and I'm actually really comfortable even when my wife says your, your humor got stuck at third grade. I'm usually really comfortable with that. And that's just who I am, you know. Uh, but for some reason, that didn't come up. And, and, I, and I had to look back at it. And I went, you know what? This is just more evidence of a shame message. Because when I was young, I was the, the third of, of, of four boys. And uh, I was a slow, late bloomer, and my, son, my, my, my brother, who was a year and a half older than me, was always just like years ahead of me when it came to intellectual and emotional development. And then I had a brother six years older, and I just remember always trying to say something funny, and everybody would look at me and go, you should be embarrassed. And that was the tape coming back for me that day in the car, and I popped the steering wheel over it. I hadn't thought about anything like that for years, but it's it's just one of those things where, you know, this, this whole dealing with these messages we've received in life that form our identity is such a big deal for us. Because haven't we all received them? Aren't there things that coaches or brothers or sisters or dads or moms or uncles or aunts or significant people in your life have said over you that that, that become 
kind of the shame message attached to your identity. I'm not good enough unless I do this. I will never be loved unless I do this. I'm embarrassing if I don't perform well or do this well. I mean, haven't we all had those messages? You know, part of what we're asking in this in this series uh, about rescued from religion is is what is most important to God in our lives. What does God really, really expect of us? And the answer today in most of America is that it turns into the answer to that question turns us into dead religion. And quite frankly, that's the reason the church in America on the whole, statistically, is dying. It's not keeping up with culture. And we want to be different than that. I want a living faith because the answer to this question can also provide for us a living faith that transforms our own lives and our community. And we've talked about this some, that how important it is to Jesus. You know, we, we reference this verse in Matthew 23 and, and kind of skip through it quickly, but, but Jesus talks a ton. And I hope you've been spending time maybe in some of the meditations or devotional ideas we've given you in the after the message, actually, actually taking a look and realizing how much Jesus really does spend, really, I think, the majority of his effort on this very topic, how to rescue people from religion and, and attacking what religion does instead of relationship. And he, in Matthew 23, he, he summarizes some of it here saying to the, to the teachers of the law, he says, What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law and you Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are so careful to clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are filthy, full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first wash the inside of the cup and the dish, and then the outside will become clean too. And what sorrow awaits you, he goes on and says to the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside, but filled on the inside with people's dead bones and all sorts of impurity. Outwardly, you look like righteous people like good church people. But inwardly, your hearts are filled with hypocrisy and lawlessness. And it's not just a New Testament thing. There's this beautiful passage in the Old Testament where Jesus is talking to the Jewish nation about their relationship to him. And he says this in in Isaiah 29, 13, Then the Lord said, Because this people draw near with their words and honor me with their lip service, but they remove their hearts from me. And their reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote. Wow. And isn't that what so many of us were taught growing up in church? We were taught that if you pray the right prayer, if you say the right thing, if you do the right thing, then you're religious and you're faithful and God loves you and you're okay. And we learn these rules by rote. Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24 says this. This is what the Lord says. He says, Let not the wise boast of their wisdom or the strong boast of their strength or the rich boast of their riches, but let the one who boasts boast about this, that they have the understanding to know me, that I am the Lord who exercises. And this is not understanding to know me in terms of we take that in a religious world. We say, well, you need to understand all the Bible. You need to understand. You need to have all this knowledge. No, this is just simply saying they have the sense to know that the priority of faith is knowing me, not all the other stuff. To know that I'm kind. To know that I'm just. To know that I want right, good things for you and for the world and for this life and for people around you. And for in these, he says, I delight. 
not um, kind of okay about this. I delight. He takes great joy in being kind. He takes great joy in being just and righteous with us. And the question we've kind of addressed the last couple of weeks a little bit, but I want to talk about more today, is if we really believe that God changes us from the inside out, that he's really more concerned about our heart, what does that look like? And, and how do we deal with the messages that, that trap us in our life? Because let's just illustrate this in terms of maybe two circles. And the outer circle out here in this area is our behavior. And the inner circle is the core of who we are. And we tend to live life when we hear people saying, oh, you should be embarrassed of that or you should, you should be better than that. We tend to take all these shame messages and they become part of our identity. And we treat religion in a way that says, okay, okay, in order to solve that, I've got to, I've got to figure out good behaviors out here to make it different because I'm bad. I'm not good in this. And so I got to figure out what the good behaviors are. And, 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 and it goes back and forth. And we've talked about the fact that, that religion either makes us, either makes us self-righteous or rebellious. It either makes us self-righteous or we react in despair. And see, if we're not following God, don't have a relationship with God, we still feel this stuff. And if we end up going into despair, we end up just having all sorts of negative behavior out here. And the interesting thing is that that negative behavior is sometimes easier to deal with before we're Christian than after. Because here's what religion looks like. We got still have these negative things and we go to religion saying, I need to teach my kids better morals. I need to have better behavior. I need to be a more faithful husband or a more faithful wife or I'm, I'm broken in this area. I'm no fun and I'm no good to be with. And, 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 but then we say religion has to make us... So religion says we have to do all these good behaviors. And over here, when we're not following God, the interesting thing is we still have this vacuum in here that wants to wants us to know be different. We still, all of us, have this sense of of, of uh, that we're broken, that that sin somehow that maybe if there's a God that somehow He created us for something more than we are. Somehow He He made us more than we really are, and we're we're really not these messages, but we don't know how to get there. But but if we give up in despair. Sometimes not following Christ is easier than following Christ because when you're over here, all the good behaviors of religion, there's actually a tension and it, and it takes so much more effort and so much more difficult. And quite frankly, if you've lived your faith and you're at a point where you're tired, you're probably living this way. And that's what we're taught. When we read the Bible, that's what we hear we read it from the perspective of what we need to do and, and we end up end, end, ending up with a faith that looks like this with tons of tension and tons of dissonance, dissonance going on in our life and, and at times then rightfully accused of being a hypocrite like Jesus talks to the Pharisees. If we give up and we just go with the behaviors and we get to define whatever we want to do and whatever is right, sometimes we just kind of deny these things or, or we say they're not that big of a deal and we do the negative behaviors associated with them and it actually feels a little bit more congruent sometimes in our lives to live life that way. 
Why do we try to attempt to overcome shame with right behaviors? Have you ever thought about that? Why do we do that? That's what the world teaches us. It says if you want to have good self-esteem, if you want to have good identify, if you, identity, if you want to overcome these things, then the way you do it is you just do the right behaviors long enough and it changes things. But the reality is that that doesn't work. And many of you have been doing it for years realize it doesn't work. Paul describes this battle going on in our lives in faith in this way. In Romans 7, 14 through 17, he says, so the trouble in me is not the law. It's, it's not the right behaviors that I'm trying to do. The things that I know are right, that I'm supposed to do to be religious and good, the things that I know I'm supposed to do to, in order to have a good, free, healthy, wonderful life, it's not the problem with those things. The trouble is with me. For I'm all too human, a slave to sin. I don't really understand myself, he says, for I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate, but if I know that what I am doing is wrong, this shows that I agree with the good that the law is. So I'm not the one doing the wrong. It's sin living in me. That's an interesting thought we're going to, we're going to come back to in just a second, but, but the reality is we all know, and this is the problem with religion, this is the problem many people leave the, leave the church when they've tried it this way, is because they've tried this so long, but they know in private or outside or even sometimes all too often in public, you can't keep this up. We don't have the energy, the strength, or the ability to keep it up. Something negative is always going to happen out here. We're always going to fail at some point. And we can't keep it up on our own. And so, Jesus says, or actually Isaiah, God says in Isaiah, in the following verse where he says, you, you just serve me with a rote, rote memorized behaviors from religion and your heart is far from me. He says, therefore, behold, I will deal once again marvelously with this people. Wondrously marvelous. That is such an odd way to think about it, especially in the context of what the Bible's talking about there. Because the, what the Bible's talking about, what the prophet Isaiah is saying there, is that God's going to come and He's going to strip away all of their right behaviors, all the things that they've done, all the accomplishments that they've made in their life that make them feel like they are godly. He's going to send them into exile and strip it away. The wisdom of their wise men will perish and the discernment of the discerning men will be concealed, he says. That's because God wants our core, who we are, to change. He just doesn't want our behaviors only. When you have, when you have somebody who's just a, a political suck-up come up to you, and they just come up to you and they just do all the right things, does that make you really feel good when you know that they're not really for you, they're not really in relationship? And, and, and that's what God's saying. I don't want that kind of relationship. I didn't design you for that kind of a relationship with me where you just do the right things, but everything inside isn't right. I've designed you for something bigger and better and different. And the, the Bible goes on to say that the solution here is found in the fact that the Holy Spirit comes to us and lives within us. He 
says he'll be with us and he's going to live in us. Because the reality is, why doesn't good overcome shame? Why don't good behaviors overcome shame? It's because behaviors are transient. They only happen in a moment and then they're gone. If you're old enough like me to, to realize this, I, I've known some great people who have performed wonderfully. They've, they've started wonderful churches or they've started wonderful businesses or they've taken and turned around things. And, and the reality I know is that just because you do it once doesn't mean you can do it again because the circumstances are different. And if our identity, if our way of dealing with our shame messages is based upon our performance, then it's like, it's like a black hole. It just sucks everything in here and... and and it goes away. And so we're constantly having to work hard, constantly having to work again because these behaviors never stay there. They're a moment in time. And God wants to change us in a different way. Well, when God comes to live in us as Christians, the Spirit's there. Sometimes we don't really believe it. Sometimes we don't really understand it. And oftentimes the struggle we have is the Spirit is here, but we still have these shame messages. And how do we deal with that? So even after Christ has come into our life, sometimes we still do the performance because we figure that, well, He's there, He loves us, He accepts us, so we probably have fire insurance, we're probably not going to hell, we're probably going to heaven, but, but we're still not being changed. So how, how do we do this? How do we, how do we live life better and Paul actually describes that struggle even a little bit more in Romans 7, what we started to allude to before. And he says, I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature. He says, I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. And this is Paul talking not before he's a Christian. This is talking after he's a Christian. This is talking right now in the moment of how he's living his faith out, trying to wrestle with this battle going on inside him between the dominance of these shame messages that, 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 that control our motivation and cause us to do things we don't want to do. And he, discovered I've, he says, I've discovered this principle of life that when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. And I, I love God's law with all my heart, but there's another power within me that is at war with my mind. And this power makes me a slave to the sin, to the shame that is still within me. And then he says what I think many of us have probably said at some point, maybe often in our Christian walk and thought, trying to follow Christ. He says, oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me? from this life that is dominated by sin. When will I ever be free of this? When will I stop popping the, wind, popping the steering wheel because I'm embarrassed, because I'm ashamed, instead of just letting it be something that, that I made a mistake in accepting God's forgiveness and, and believing that God created me well? When can I do this? When, when can I stop having to perform to, to be loved and, and to be accepted? When, when can I stop having all these negative behaviors that come because I'm so tired and I'm so stressed that I can never measure up that, that I just go out and do stupid stuff every now and then and let myself do stupid stuff? And again, most of us are taught to fight this battle through religion. Just memorize the right scriptures. Work hard enough. 
set boundaries, make sure you don't go to places you're not supposed to go where you're going to be tempted and don't hang with people who you're not, who, who tempt you and who you're going to be tempted with. And so you, you cut off relationship and you do all sorts of religious things and, and we become self-righteous because we think if we just do the right thing long enough, it'll change the insides. If we just hang on long enough, if we just don't do this sin, if we just do the right thing long enough, then we won't be tempted anymore. We won't feel the same way. We won't be frustrated. and We won't have those shame messages continue. And you see, I'm not interested in having a church where we spend a bunch of time trying to make everybody look good. I'm not interested in having a church where we create a lot of rules so that people have to perform well and if they don't look good, then they can't be a part of us. And neither is God. He wants to get at the core of those things that drive our sexual desires into places they shouldn't go. He wants to get at the core of our depression that drives us to, to drink or, or escape or do things or, or, or break out in anger that... that, that cause us to do things we shouldn't do. He wants to get at the core of those things that make us feel like we need to hide because that's what this is. When we start putting all these plus marks out here, we're just trying to cover up and make everybody around us think that these messages aren't there and hoping that someday we'll believe it too. And we're withdrawing from people. We're staying away and sometimes we even, in the midst of being religious, we even withdraw from God. We're good enough. We're performing good enough. How have you tried in your own life to compensate for the shame messages, the sense of emptiness, emptiness, the sense of being defective by engaging in right and wrong behaviors? In your own life, where does that show up? How have you been encouraged to walk by religious rules or as Paul would say, the, by the flesh as a solution to these things you're tempted, these evil things that you're tempted to do? or that drive you? Or maybe here's another question you could ponder and think about this week. Where's an example of a sh- What's an example from this past week or so of a shaming message you've received or told yourself? Did you pop the steering wheel sometime? Did you pop in anger sometime this last week? What's the shaming message behind that that you're struggling with? Or here's a flip side you may not think of. What's an example of a positive message somebody gave you this week that didn't make it through your shame grid that you just dismissed? You kind of went, yeah, no, that's not really me. I'm not really that. I'm not really good. That's another evidence of the fact that you've got a shame grid if you can't receive a compliment, if you can't receive a gift of love from somebody The struggle for us is how do we walk in our imperfect state? How do we walk in this? When we know we've still got these negative behaviors going on here, yeah, we've got a few positive things, but but you know what? We're so imperfect. We're so broken. How do we walk out of our shame and allow the Spirit and allow the life of God to become more real and more powerful? How do we answer the question that Paul asked? Who can rescue us from this state of being? Instead of living empty and tired and trying to measure up all the time, who can rescue us? And, and it's not a quick fix. 
You know, I thought I'd dealt with all this shame around my humor years ago, and I really, most of the time, 90% of the time, I'm fine with it, and it doesn't pop up, and I really can laugh about it, and I'm completely at peace and even joyful about it. But how can we be free? It's, it's a lifelong process. I mean, Paul uses many different words in different places. He talks about working out our salvation, uh, stretching ourselves to work out our salvation. He talks about pressing on, growing through the press of life. He talks about being watchful and and paying attention to these things going on and and catching them. He he talks about being filled with the Spirit of God. That this this thing, one of the reasons we can't ever deal with these negative messages by behavior is because these messages are not about behavior. They're about relationship. They're about acceptance. They're about love. And behavior can never answer those issues. And so he says to us, the way we live life on a daily basis is to be being filled, be continually being filled more and more with the Spirit of God. And this just isn't, I mean, yes, there's a mystical sense to this that you very likely experience this presence of God, but it's, but it's even more about that. It's, it's, it's allowing His view of you and who you are and how He thinks about you to, to just continually expand to take over these things. And Paul goes on and answers that question himself in Romans 8, 1 and 2. He says, So now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. How can that be? How can there be no condemnation when we've got these shame messages going on that condemn us and when we've got all these behaviors that line up to Him? How can we live in a place of no condemnation? And he says, And because you belong to Him, the power of the life-giving Spirit that has freed you from the power of sin and leads to death, leads to death will be in you. And and here's the deal. When we live our life, when we become a Christian, God certainly does change our lives for the better. He certainly does free us of some of these negative things and He turns them into positives for us. He certainly does, maybe even sometimes immediately in our life of coming to Christ, change some of these things. But we get impatient And we hear all these passages about how you should be holy and how you should not lust and how you should be really perfect and you should think all these right things and do all these right things. And we read those passages of Scripture and we start feeling feeling pressure. And again, we start going back to saying, okay, man, I'm not being changed fast enough. What do I do to do this? And, And we think we have to be changed overnight. But the reality is that His forgiveness extends to all of this. And does God want our life to change out here? Certainly He does. Because some of the negative things we do out here damage ourselves and others. And He so desperately wants to heal those areas in our life. But we look at life sometimes in this, in this microcosm of a moment. And the reality is our life here today on earth, our entire life on earth, is like, you know, the first two minutes of, of meeting your in-laws for the first time. I mean, it's not that big of a deal. Do you even remember the first time? Does that really bother you anymore? Does it make you nervous anymore? 
about the first time you did that from the past? And, and, and if we start looking at Scripture honestly, instead of through a religious lens, we have to start asking our, ourselves about the great people in the Bible. What did God fix in their life? How much of this did He resolve while they were still on earth? What did He confront and what didn't He confront? I mean, honestly, if we look at David in the Old Testament, there's a whole lot of negative things that never got solved in his life, and yet God was so pleased with him. If we look at the disciples and their time with Jesus, what did he confront in them, and what are the things that he didn't confront? See, we want to, when we get religious, we want to deal with all these things and say, we got to solve them now. And so we put pressure on ourselves and work and work and work instead of realizing, yeah, it's important. God does want to heal us in those areas. But it's not up to me. It's going to come by me knowing Him. He goes on later, and Paul goes on later in Romans 8. He says, but if through the power of the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the sinful nature, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God, led by the Spirit of God. Religion, we lead the way. We say this has to change now, and I'm not good enough if this doesn't change now. God says, no, I've covered it. Let me lead you. Let's just deal with what I want to deal with right now in your life. Let me, let me bring freedom to you in the area I want to bring freedom to in your life. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. So you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, and fear is part of of shame, isn't it? When we feel embarrassed, we're fearful. We're fearful of what other people think. We're fearful of what we'll think about ourselves. We're fearful of what God will say about us. And our tendency so often when we're fearful is to withdraw. How many, of you, how many of you have seen it as parents or as brothers or siblings or as, uh, brothers or sisters or siblings when your siblings have gotten disciplined? How many of you have seen them just clam up and close up and want to withdraw? And in the, in the, in the parenting arena, which is an area, I just, this is an area where I feel really God working on in my life right now, I can see so easily where I allow my kids to withdraw from my love when I discipline instead of drawing them into my love and towards me and fear and shame make us want to withdraw. Instead, you receive God's Spirit when, you, when He adopted you as His, as His own children. Now we, are, we call Him Abba, Father. We call Him Daddy. For His Spirit joins with our spirit to affirm, to affirm that we are God's Children, it doesn't matter what these other messages are saying that reject us from being God's children. His Spirit is there to affirm that we are His children. And since we are His children, we are His heirs. His heirs. There's a guarantee in that. There's a guarantee in what He says to us in that statement and so many other statements in the Bible that He is going to deal with this. You know what? Maybe not in our lifetime. Maybe it's all going to be when we... Maybe some of it's going to only be dealt with when we get to heaven. And you know what? He doesn't care. Now, that could be taken as too strong of a statement because He does care about the pain that it causes, but, but really He wants this. He wants our heart 
to trust Him. There's a friend of Wendy's and mine from years ago. His name is Jeff. And Jeff was a minister at one point, and he got caught up in this. He, he, he got caught up in the whole religious cycle, and he started putting all sorts of plus signs out here and, and doing the really good behavior and, and got to the point where faith for him was defined by your behavior. And unfortunately, faith... We'll talk about this in more detail in a series that we're probably going to do in the near future on James. But faith is a behavior, but, but the behavior starts out of a basis in here. Not here. And so often our faith when we talk to God is, I have faith that you'll bless me if I do all the right things. And faith is me thinking the right thoughts, not thinking the wrong thoughts, doing the right things, not doing the bad things. And it's all about that. But faith, the kind that he wants, originates in right here and right here. That God loves me. He's accepted me. He doesn't see this stuff in the sense that he cares about having to fix it all at once. I don't need to take the pressure on that I have to be fixed instantly. I can let him do it in me. And that's really where one of the struggles for me a few years ago in just an intense time of, of temptation that I went through resulted. I was doing all the right stuff. I had all the plus marks out here. In fact, even during the time of, of severe temptation, I did all the right things to avoid actually acting upon that temptation. But no matter how hard I tried, the, the temptation only got worse and only more intense. I could not put up enough boundaries, put up enough things in my life to keep from being tempted in this area. And it came down to the point where I started having to come to a solution in what God wanted to do in my life and how He wanted to do it. And I had to start identifying the messages in my life that allowed these cracks to happen because every one of these negatives allows a crack to happen in our behavior at some point. We can only hold out so long. And I had to start disputing and saying, you know, maybe these are some of yours. This isn't necessarily mine right now. But, but, but one way to deal with these shame messages is to, is to identify them. So if you've got a shame message that says love is, love is given through performance, then spend a bunch of time reading the Scriptures and thinking about and, and talking even overtly to yourself about, no, love was given while we're still a sinner. Love was given by God before we ever even asked for it. Not because I performed. Not because I did anything good. This is one that, that was part of what was going on with me during that time of temptation. temptation is, is this idea that, that God has given me this wonderful purpose and I'm not sure I'm good enough to make it happen. So I put all this pressure on myself to perform and, and fulfill and be effective in what I do to make sure God will do what He says He wants to do through me. And, and yet... The reality is that God says He has planned good works for each of us in advance to do. And He's more concerned about us fulfilling those things than we are. He's working harder to bring those about than we are. And we can rest in that. Some of us may think I'm a mistake and have probably even thought it would be better if I were not here. And yet... 
What the Bible says is that God knew you in your mother's womb. He formed your days. He planned good for you. He has joy and peace to bring in your life and purpose to do through you. And you can rest in that. You are not a mistake. You are the intentional thought of God. For some of you, maybe the shame is surrounded around family and and maybe you say to yourself, "I, I must be a good parent. If I don't protect my children from harm and if I don't make sure that they are successful, then I am a bad parent. And the reality of the Bible is that, that we're accountable to God for only ourselves and our behavior. And the Bible is replete with statements that we can trust God with our kids to work in them. But neither he nor I can control my kids. Maybe the shame is I must look good and do things perfectly in order to ensure that I have a good reputation. I don't embarrass my family or I don't embarrass God or I don't embarrass myself. And the truth of the Bible is He doesn't care if there's negatives going out here. They're embarrassing. He's focused here. He looks at your heart. He wants you to know you're loved. But that disputing doesn't do it enough for me sometimes. And even in this time of intense intense temptation, even identifying these things for me didn't solve the issue. I had to actually step back at times and just worship and spend time with God. And think about who he is to me. That he loves me. And if he loves me, how would I feel? And just spend some time meditating on that. And think about it. You know, okay, I'm in the room with this person who's a political suck-up. Or I'm in the room with my closest, dearest friend who knows everything about me. What's the difference in that feeling? And then magnify this feeling by more. If that's how God feels about me and loves me, then I need to let him allow and have him help me allow, pull the words out. Um, I need to have him help me experience that feeling and take time meditating on it. And if he loves me that much, then how would he want me to behave? If he loves me this much, then how does he want me to behave? It's from the inside out. So to maybe spend time thinking about the fact that he has good planned for you. And since he has good, since he promises good, then in the stress and the, the turmoil and the chaos and the threat to your business or the threat to your family or the, or the fight going on in your relationship at home right now, If he has good for me, then how can I act differently in the midst of that potential feeling of failure? How do I view God differently and how do I view myself differently when times are unclear? And he has assured the outcome. It hasn't been trendy to talk a whole lot about heaven lately at the church. I don't know why for the last 20 years. I don't hear very many messages on it. But the reality is that he has assured the outcome. We don't have to worry about how much this gets fixed now. It will be fixed someday. We will be free someday. And the Bible talks about wanting to lead us into this place of rest. This place of peace. 
And when we do religion, we find no peace. But He wants us to rest and to just enjoy Him here and enjoy Him as, as, as He starts to expand in those lives and in our life and take this out. And as He begins to expand over here and take this out, but to let Him do it, let Him lead us and, and to even joy, enjoy Him in the midst of these things happening out here. Because He truly is a God who loves us, who's forgiven us, who knows that we're still going to fail, and yet He's with us anyway and speaking kindly to us. It's very difficult to wrestle with that. And it's challenging for us to come to that because, because these corrupted messages so form our identity. And, and it ends up being this battle, as Paul describes in Romans 7, that we have to fight. But if we don't fight it right, we end up dead religion. Resting in his love and saying, God, I can't change this. Change me if you can. I may never be able to change but would you come and change me if you can? Because I know you love me right now just the way I am. And it's also a difficult challenge because in John 3, to understand this whole process, because in John 3, uh, the Bible says this, which is just a very puzzling picture to me. It says, the wind blows wherever it pleases, speaking of the Holy Spirit. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. And so it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Religion, we're always trying to create the box. The Spirit is the most, God's Spirit is the most reliable person we will ever know, ever, ever know. He always loves, always cares, always pursues, is always faithful, and He's the most unpredictable person we'll ever know. And that always frustrated me, but, but I've come to the conclusion he's unpredictable because we are so prone to take all these things and try to fix them by ourselves and create this rule box in which God must fit. That he wants to be unpredictable so that we have to constantly follow him, that we have to constantly pursue him, that we have to constantly wait for him and know him and never become reliant just on our own rules to fix our own lives. I really want to encourage you this week, take time to specifically identify some of the life-controlling shame messages that you pop the steering wheel over just like I do sometimes. I want you to take some time to try to, instead of solving them, picture God loving you even with that present. Picture Him smiling at you even in the midst of that shame, even in the midst of that behavior that you wish you hadn't done, God still, still smiles at you and loves you. Lord, I pray that your spirit would become big in us and that we would recognize your presence more and more each day. And Lord, for those here who are tired, who have been fighting the religious battle, I pray especially for them right now that you would come and you would relieve that tension, that guilt, that pressure, and that you would overwhelm them with the sense that you've covered it all. You know it all. You love them. And you have a plan to transform them. And they just simply need to rest in you and let you do it. 
Lord, would you lead us as a people and lead us as a church into the power and kindness and justice and righteousness and grace of a relationship with you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you came here and would like somebody to pray for you, we'd be happy to pray for you. Um, If not, uh, have a great week. God bless you.